0: Welcome everyone to Mutuality Matters, gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. I am Erin Monas, here with my co-host Blake Dean, and today we are excited to host author and theologian Natalie Carnes. Natalie is a constructive theologian who reflects on traditional theological topics through somewhat less traditional themes, like images, iconoclasm, beauty, gender, and childhood. For this work, she draws on literary and visual works as sites of theological reflection, and her interest in doing so takes her into questions of religious knowledge and authority. Her third book, recently published, is a theological narrative entitled Motherhood, a Confession. It mirrors the structure and themes of St. Augustine's confessions to offer a different story that reflects on different flesh as to consider what it means to be human in the face of the divine. Currently, she's working on a new project, co-authored with Matthew Whelan, that explores intersections of poverty, aesthetics, luxury, and art. In it, they pursue the question, what is the place of art in a world of poverty and suffering? Natalie lives in Waco with her husband and three children. And boy, did we have fun talking to her. So Blake Dean, tell our listeners, what should they be listening for? What are they about to hear in this podcast?
1: So as you mentioned in her bio, she recently um, published a book called Motherhood of Confessions. And that's what we invited her to talk about, which is um, a meditation on the female body as a site of theological reflection, but more specifically, what would it mean if Augustine's Confessions was told um, meditating on a different experience, specifically that of a mother. I know that um, conversations and dialogues around motherhood get pretty pigeonholed to be like only if you are a mother or want to be a mother could this dialogue apply Mm -hmm. to you. But I I read the whole book because I've been following Dr. Carnes' work for a couple years. And... um, I still talk about it, and I still think about it, and um, it grew my, not only my thinking about gender theology, but my thinking about God, my thinking about myself, and my thinking about my sisters, um, so I'm excited, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Natalie Collins. Well, Welcome to Mutuality Matters. We are so honored and excited to have Dr. Natalie Carnes with us today. Um, Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited about the conversation.
2: My pleasure. I'm also excited about it.
1: If you've been listening for a while, you know that we start every episode with a segment we like to call Watch, Read, or Listen, where we ramble for just a brief moment about what is filling our minds, hearts, and days. So, Aaron, what are you watching, reading, or listening?
0: I have actually been going back and listening to, re-listening to um, podcast episodes from the Pass the Mic podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so as you know, I listen to like eight different podcasts a week and I've been trying to, to curate my feed a little bit and um, they... You know we've been talking so much about race in this country, and um, they have been having this really compelling conversation for years now. And so I'm going back and sort of refreshing on some of my favorites to uh, to kind of tighten up on um, on on that. But I would recommend that podcast to to anyone. Pass the mic if you're not familiar with it; it has some great content. So that's what I'm listening to. What about you, Blake Dean? I am currently reading,
1: um, and I've been reading it for a while, so I'm working really slowly through it, God and the Art of Happiness by Ellen Cherry, exploring both the philosophy and theology of happiness and how like, to Christianly understand the good life. So that's been um, definitely a, a headier read, but it's been really, really good, so I've really enjoyed it. Natalie, what about you?
2: Well, I've been, I just watched Hamilton. Uh, this weekend when it was released on Disney Plus, and um, that was really fun. I I watched it as I'm also reading uh, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, which is about Thomas Mm. Cromwell, and I'm sort of being struck by the similarities between Alexander Hamilton's story and Thomas Cromwell's story, both sort of like men who came from obscure backgrounds to be able to rise the ranks through power and how it was they were able to do that and stay there, but um, now I've got like the songs of Hamilton in my head constantly. So I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of, I guess I, I've been hearing about it for forever and it was really fun to finally get to see it myself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, We me and um, my fiance watched it this past weekend as well and I've just been singing Satisfied for the last 48 hours. And she's like, you have to stop. Stop singing it.
2: <laughs> one last time. One last time is the one yes. that's in my head. Oh man.
1: I love it. It's so good. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't um, underwhelm. Uh, it definitely meets the hype for sure. Yes. Well, I'd love to move in to talk about your latest book, which is Motherhood, A Confession, which I finished yes. last evening. And I um, was telling Aaron and I told you very briefly, I was so moved by this work. And so number one, thank you for writing it. But number two, I think it, it's so interesting um, to read a book about motherhood when you're never going to be a mother and not going to be a parent anytime soon. Um, But I think something that you did so masterfully was it's not, um, it doesn't follow the trajectory of uh, mommy blogs or like practical advice, but instead is using um, motherhood as a site of theological reflection. I wonder um, at the risk of asking too obvious of a question, could you talk about why you felt or thought that motherhood is a valuable site of theological reflection and what that can teach us?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question, Blake. Well, I think You could think about it from two directions one is um the direction of humanity it's um all of us are of woman born right we all have a mother who is either present or absent in our lives and that presence or absence has marked us in different ways and many people in the world are also mothers and so from the perspective of its importance to humanity it's an important side of theological reflection and then also um, you can think about it from the side of divinity right which is that motherhood has been a sort of persistent if low-key metaphor for describing who god is in relationship to us both Mm. in scripture going back to the old testament paul uses this metaphor a lot Mm -hmm. and then throughout the tradition especially like in the uh, there are a number of like medieval mystics who talk about motherhood as a way of thinking about god so it's present in the under theologized and it's also an important analogical concept i think so like you say you're never going to be a mother and you're never going to be a biological mother that's true but we already recognize the ways that people can be mothers without being biological mothers through Mm -hmm you know, um, foster mothers and adoptive parents. And then in religious traditions, we have mothers as abbesses. And and I think all of this points to the way that motherhood is analogical, but it's also, in, there's a way in which we're all called to motherhood, mm-hmm. right? We're all called to give birth to Christ in the world. That's sort of our, our telos is human. And so I think there is a way that you're called to motherhood in that way. And then there's all these other kinds of ways you might be called to motherhood. I think teaching and mentoring are, are ways of being parents in the world. I mean, they, this is recognized, for example, in, in, in Germany, your, your dissertation advisor, your mentor is a Dr. father. Your, your hmm. usually your Dr. Father, but also you could have a Dr. mother. And there's a way in which mentoring is a kind of parenthood. So Mm. I think that even though you might not be a biological mother, you're called to motherhood. And what that means is worth reflecting on theologically. Mm.
1: Indeed. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So not only do you address the motherhood as a side of theology, but you're also in conversation with one of the most well-read books, uh, which is Augustine's Confessions, and you perform what you have called a reparative reading Mm -hmm. of this text. I think I I am particularly uh, struck by the quiet subversion that is a reparative reading um, in a cultural mo- moment where what's been called cancel culture kind of rules, where um, if parts of a text or parts of um, content can be seen as problematic, we no longer have a relationship with it. I wonder if you could talk about um, two levels of that. Number one, what, why a reparative reading? What does that, what does that mean? Number one, and what does that do? And number two, um, why Augustine and why Augustine's Confession?
2: Yeah, I'm interested in what it means for me as a feminist theologian, for feminist theologians to be able to receive the inheritance of Christianity, which includes all of these patriarchal and misogynist texts, as our own um, and as feminists. So the way that feminist theology has developed its really important moves have been moves that fall under the mode of avoidance and of critique. And so a, a crit- critical, a critique reading of the, of the confessions would point out the way that female flesh uh, is figured as sin throughout most of the confessions, the way that when women first appear in the confessions, it's in his sort of story, Augustine's story of nursing, his imagining of his infant greedy nursing self who is over-attached to the breasts of his mother and nurse. Mm. And how do the mothers and nurses see that? Well, they see him as is uh, like as a sort of silly sin that he'll grow out of or a silly, not even a sin, sort of, they look at it smilingly, is how Augustine puts it. But Augustine, seeing it at a distance is like, no, this is an example of our original sin that we're so greedy when we nurse, and these women are unable to see it because of their sentimental attachments to the baby. And so women are figured as sort of unable to perceive sin rightly, and then their bodies, both the nursing bodies, and then later, the sort of, their sexual bodies are, Figurative sites of sin and problem for Augustine. So anyway, you can do this sort of critical reading and point out all of the ways that women are outsiders to the text, and that's really important work because what it does is it exposes how it is structures of domination are present in our texts, and it helps us hopefully check us from replicating those structures of domination, and then. There's also modes of reading that are avoidant. So that mode of reading might be okay. Let's set Augustine aside because he's just too patriarchal, which some feminist theologians have done, or let's set aside the most patriarchal parts of Augustine and just focus on these other parts. Or, uh, and that's really important too because this enables feminist theologians to start new conversations in theology, right? You you really rehabilitate voices from the margins. You rehabilitate Julian of Norwich's describing Christ as mother. You rehabilitate, you bring into the conversation uh, voices from feminist theory. And so you inject new voices that are more generative to women in these theological conversations. So both have important works, but in the end of the day, both also reaffirm women as outsiders to the theological tradition, hmm. right? Or they reaffirm feminists as unaddressed by Augustine's wow. confessions. And I'm interested in, well, how, how can the Augustine's confessions be my text? How can it also hmm. speak to me? And so this reparative reading, or what I've also called in other places, a reading of attunement, is a way of trying to mediate Augustine's confessions into the theological tradition in a way that it's women are addressed by the text and are part of this theological conversation. And that we actually come to think of it, we were talking about Hamilton earlier, it's not dissimilar from what Lynn manuel Miranda was doing with yeah. Hamilton, right? Where he's taking this story that's largely about white men and um, yeah. casting it in such a way that it becomes the story of a multi-ethnic America, and it becomes part of this ongoing story and struggles mm-hmm. we're having about immigration, Black lives, and people of color, yeah. and the kinds of struggles that they face in America. Um, so he makes this story the story of all of us, and mm-hmm. a story present for today, and I think that's a similar thing to what I'm doing. Yeah.
1: I think that's it's- apt. I, didn't, I hadn't thought about that, but I do think that's an apt Comparison. You mentioned maybe in um, your acknowledgments for sure, but also in some interview or some essays you've written about the book that uh, these questions about Augustine's confessions, while they may have started in grad school, were kind of stoked on the flames of um, your current students. I wonder if you could Mm -hmm. talk about some of the conversations that your students were having or maybe the questions that that either brought to you or refined in you.
2: Yes, thank you. Um, So I teach Introduction to Theology, which is a, at Baylor, that's a class for juniors and seniors. We read mostly a bunch of primary sources, but Augustine's Confessions is one of the two texts that I sort of thread throughout the course. And it's always a powerful text for students because it is a story of desire, the betrayals of desire, the transformations Mm. of desire, in a way that speaks to students more immediately than some of the other texts we read that are about more arcane debates that we have to sort of explain the Greek terms for and things. Um, So it speaks to them immediately. Um, And I I always just sort of worry that, am I um, sort of contributing to a culture that marginalizes women by teaching Mm -hmm. this text all the time? And I guess those questions became more pronounced for me, particularly in my, as I began teaching feminist theology I don't know four or five years ago mm. um and part of it was realizing um the deep existential questions students were carrying about gender with them
0: mm. and that
2: even if there were they weren't always voiced relative to augustine's confessions i don't know if students always knew how to voice them except for um wondering about his mm. his sort of common law life and laughing at these stories of the infants, that they were present. And um, and they were present in these very existential ways. And my, my feminist theology class became a time for me where students felt safer, I guess, in sharing some of the things that they had gone through. And I realized, I, I started teaching it, yeah, about five years ago, because I was teaching it during, um, when all of the sexual, the sort of campus-wide reckoning with sexual assault was happening at Baylor and other campuses, and the during the Me Too movement, and I guess that opened up conversation in a different way to realize students aren't just coming with academic questions to this, to these texts. They're coming with these deep existential questions of who am I relative to God, and um, Augustine's Confessions answers that for a very particular person, Augustine, that it's easier for some people to identify with than others. But the problem becomes that, I mean, this is, besides scripture, the most read text in Western theology. And um, it's a story of what it means to be human in the face of the divine, because it's one person's story, but it's read as the paradigmatic story that's harder for some students and some readers to see themselves in than others. And um, if you don't see yourself in the paradigmatic story of what it means to be human in the face of the divine, then 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 how are you going to negotiate that your your way in the world and your relationship to to God? And so um so those kinds of questions sort of propelled me, as well as the questions I was having as being a mother at the time, propelled me to to write this book.
0: And we we greatly appreciate it. I know for my own reading of your book, I, it was just refreshing. It was, mm-hmm. it was just so refreshing, um, to, to get, uh, just such a rich engagement mm-hmm. with, um, with, with motherhood and femininity, um, within the tradition that I love so much. Um, it, it there's a conversation that always sticks in my mind, uh, that I had, Um, in a classroom not that long ago where we were talking about early baptismal fonts being shaped like uh, female genitals used for the symbolism of of you know the rebirth and the new birth which you which you talk about in your book and um, we're talking about being the bride of Christ and some of the some of the things that are going on there and I had a colleague uh, say in in complete you know non-maliciousness but just was genuinely concerned he says he says well this is all fascinating. I'd never heard this before, but I pastor a church that has a lot of like guys and manly men. Um, and I just don't think they're going to jive with this whole bride of Christ thing. It's just too feminine for them. Is there any way we can sort of man it up a little bit? And I was just like, oh, okay. I'm just going to take man a deep breath up. here. That's always man my favorite up, yeah. question. Oh, gosh. And, uh, and so it led to this really productive conversation, which we're fortunately, the man who presented the question, I I think, really learned and and accepted a lot that day. But talking about how women are always having to reread themselves back into our Christianity, because it is so saturated with male imagery. And when we talk about imaging Christ and we talk about, um, how to, you know, discipling and when we reference, uh, scripture stories, it is just so much, um, maleness that, that we're navigating. And so, um, and with just poor Bible translations that are using male pronouns and having like, I don't think it ever occurred to me how often I have to reread or, or or switch, um, over to remind myself that oh when it says all men that also pertains to me Um, and so women are sort of in this constant place where we're having to do that and so your book your book and what you bring to this um, allows us to remember that there's so much in the faith where we don't have to take that extra step Mm. to connect ourselves back into this and even even though I myself am not a biological mother, but a a mother through many of the other ways that you were describing, <laughs> um, and I, I absolutely love that seeing seeing Christian life and theology informed by um, these these feminine themes that actually are a lot more pervasive in our faith tradition than maybe we were taught or thought about. Um, this is what I'm excited for, for our listeners, for them to to hear this and seek your book out and to have that same experience of getting sort of reeducated in ways that, that they were missed. So um, I just really I just appreciate that.
2: I, I think those those moments of discomfort, in a classroom are really important um, to ask, what is the source of discomfort? And one of the ways that I I try to challenge the students in my Intro to Theology class, not to use pronouns for God. And I frame it to them as an exercise in anti-idolatry. I think this is one of the great gifts of feminist theology, is that it helps expose to us the ways that we become captivated to idolatrous ideas of God. I mean, fatherhood is a wonderful way of thinking about God, um, but it doesn't mean that God is male. And we might intellectually know that, but our imaginations have been so, captivated by this image that it's hard for us to imagine god outside of maleness and if i mean if you want a real exercise and like gender like opening like read some of these medieval mystics i mean it's just not only is god like a mother but like there's also but that doesn't mean that god isn't also the spouse at the same time and you have catherine of siena my students in feminist theology always find this weird, but, um, Catherine Sienna Siena, like marrying Christ with Christ foreskin as her wedding ring. <laughs> so there's, there's just all of this mix and all of it's pointing to the way that God cannot be captured by gender, by sex. You know, God is beyond male and female. That's a very simple idea, but for some reason, our imaginations constantly sort of settle into and reify particular images of God.
1: I, I found, um, perhaps like um, to my own discomfort with my discomfort, like even as I'm reading your book (laughs) um, using, and I like am feminist through and through, like I've taken feminist theology. I have Elizabeth Johnson on my shelf and yet like, I still like after two decades of this, the way that I've learned about God being um, using male pronouns, um, talking about him solely as father. It's like, I still get a little like, oh, well that's, that's different and true, but that's different. And like, you know, definitely having to let it seep and undo some of my own idolatry that I'm not even comfortable with having. So I think yeah. um, reading not only your work, but also the Catherine's of Siena's and the Julian's yeah. of Norwich yeah. um, and the Elizabeth Johnson's um, yeah. help us to think about that differently. Um, I loved Aaron's point about women having to reread themselves into the tradition. And I mm-hmm. think maybe a counterpoint to that, that, or not a counterpoint, but an additional point that you, I think, explore really beautifully is how um, sometimes because of uh, lived experience and patriarchy and um, socialization, women have to ask different questions. And so a central thing to Augustine's reflections is desire. Mm -hmm. Um, But for him, that's um, centered on his own um, lust-filled desire. But you Mm -hmm. talk about the tensions and the difficulties of talking about female desire, specifically female sexual desire. I mm-hmm. wonder if you could um, map out, map that out just a little bit for us about how mm-hmm. maybe uh, you as a woman or women mm-hmm. um, generally have to think mm-hmm. about desire differently than maybe Augustine presents it.
2: Yeah, I think there's been a lot of really great... I mean, that might... My- My chapter on desire is informed not just by feminist theory, but also by all this great journalistic writing there's been, um, especially in the wake of Me Too. And there was one um, journalist who describes um, giving a talk on consent, and then um, afterwards being asked by a woman, uh, a college-age woman, how do you know what you want to say yes to or no to in bed? And and she describes having that experience repeated um, across several encounters with women where there's a kind of distance between what they desire and what they know they desire. They they have trouble getting in touch with their own desires. I think that starts for women. For us, when you're young, I mean, what are the first things, ways people interact with young girls? I mean, if you observe it, you can see it over and over again. I've got three girls and I see it like it's that, oh, aren't you so pretty? Like, look at what you're wearing or look at, you know, you're. Hair. You're so pretty. And that that teaches women to take desire secondhand, that your desire is um, pleasure comes through seeing it fulfilled in other people in a way that can, I mean, and then you can see that sort of being manifest earlier and um, later on in life and eating disorders and things like that. Um, where there's all of these ways in which we uh, learn to become estranged from our own desires. Augustine has almost the opposite problem, um, where he's so in touch with his sexual desire um, that it keeps him from being in touch with his deepest desires, right? So he's in touch with his desire, but it's, it's these immediate shallow desires that he's in touch with. Whereas a lot of, it's, it's different for a lot of women that you are not in touch with those more immediate sexual desires as, as easily as Augustine perhaps, but both are ways of then uh, preventing us from attuning to our life's sort of deepest desires. And that's work that um, you have to do from different directions from Augustine's story and then from the story of many women growing up well today I was going to say, but really throughout the centuries. Yeah.
1: No, I think I was really compelled by your um, exploration of that. And I find that to be, um, as a man, very um, challenging too, even as, again, as someone who wants to be a student of feminist Mm -hmm. theology um, and of the women around me, but also going like, oh, the way that I talk about even my own relationship to desires or lust or those kind Mm -hmm. of things also has like, Needs to be a little bit wider if I'm going to speak about it generally rather than particularly, mm-hmm. um, so I I appreciate that. I so in your book the roughly the first I I guess the first three quarters ish maybe a little over half is written as a letter or um, spoken as if to your. Um, daughter you said you have three but you write as if you have one to protect mm-hmm. their privacy um and then the last little bit is written to god and this um, kind of moves away from augustine's model just a touch where he mm-hmm. writes most of it to um, god's self i wonder um and this is part of your argument by the end of the book which is um, how your how your daughters how your children um, image god to you i wonder if you could talk a little bit about why that choice was made and what that how we think about that theologically
2: yeah, yeah. In part, it's a working out of Augustine's theology and in, in a shifting of it as well. I mean, Augustine, for, for Augustine, all the world is a gift of God. All of the world is God's creation. And so all of the world can give God to us. Um, God is constantly trying to speak to us um, through the world, um, inflame our desires for God through the world. And yet, all the world can then also become an idol um, that prevents us from seeing God. And that's sort of how Augustine's exploring both of those in the Confessions. But sometimes what comes through more is his anxiety about the world rather than the way that the world can give us God, the anxiety about it it becoming an idol. Um, So part of what I'm exploring is um, the way that motherhood can be can be a way of opening on to that other possibility of how creation is constantly giving us God and the way that particularly this really great gift of a child um, can be a way of giving us God in a new kind of way establishing a new um, a new type of relationship to God so I was interested in in exploring that um, that possibility but and, and then also noting the way that these good gifts can become problematic for us and we can refuse to receive them as they've been given to us. I, I I wanted to dramatize this possibility of receiving God in these unexpected places in the world. And so that's part of what The Address is doing. Um, and I think it's also maybe the way that Augustine can sustain this dialogue or this monologue to God over the course of um, 13 books is something that is, it requires a kind of spiritual virtuoso almost to relate to. But most of us can relate, at least people who can relate to a dialogue with another person Mm. and then see the way that that dialogue or that monologue to another person, that address to another person um, can be a way of, in the end, actually addressing God or not addressing God. So that was another thing I was trying to explore.
0: Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, I was wondering if you can maybe even... Speak to something specific for me. There is um, a phrase that our listeners, when they get into your work and when they read the book, are are going to to come across that. I was wondering if you could un- unpack for us, which is non-contrastive transcendence. Mm-hmm. Um, you you work very much in this, and you talk a lot about it. But um, do
2: I use that word in the book? <laughs> How did my editor it like?
0: <laughs>
1: no, in but <laughs> in your defense, it was. Sometimes my students get um, caught up in the abstraction okay. of non-contrastive <laughs> transcendence. So it's yeah, it's explained yes. a little bit before. Okay,
2: okay, okay. Yes. Well, and,
0: and to be to be fair, also I've been I've been listening to things that you're public speaking and in podcasts you've been on and other aspects of your work, and I just I just find this really fascinating. So could you just talk a little bit about that for us?
2: Yes. So this is the idea that God is not a thing in the universe. God is not being among beings. God is not at the top of some spectrum of attributes like goodness, power. God is the ground of being. God is the ground of goodness. God is goodness itself. God is power, God's self. So uh, so non-contrastive transcendence means that um, God is so beyond the world that God does not contrast with the world. One of the theologians who's, by the way, been so important in reintroducing this idea into contemporary theology is Kathy Tanner, but if it's deep in the Christian tradition, um, particularly she, she draws a lot on Gregory of Nyssa, who's um, one of my, wrote my first book on. So anyway, so, but she also identifies this, I think, very helpfully in terms of two models for falsely relating transcendence and eminence. So transcendence names God's beyondness of the universe, and eminence names God's presence to the universe. And um, so she says, "Okay, look, you've got this model. You can find these models in in Greek philosophy, where you've got the uh, the Greek gods, right? And um, they are gods who are at the they're they're powerful. They're more powerful than humans. They're wiser and better, arguably, than humans." Um, um, but they're better in the way that they're higher along on the spectrum, right? They're on this, they're like, if we're on ladder rung number three, they're on ladder rung number 12 or something of, of in the universe. So th- the benefit of describing divinity in this way is that you can explain how it is divinity is present in the world, how it is these gods can interact with us. But the divinity, the picture that emerges is not a robust picture of transcendence. These gods aren't very far beyond the world. They're like at the top of Mount Olympus, right? They're right there in the world. Um, And then with Plato and Plotinus, um, you have a picture of divinity that is transcendent, but is transcendent in a contrastive way. So whereas we are in the realm of becoming, divinity is the realm of being. Whereas we are the realm of temporality, divinity is the realm of eternality. And so this is a picture of divinity that has transcendence. And yet that transcendence means that it's not clear how it is. Um, Divinity can interact with the world of humanity in any kind of meaningful way, which is why in Plato's picture of creation, you have to have these intermediaries. um, God can't directly create the world. So here's the problem is that transcendence and eminence seem to be in a kind of tug of war and an inverse relationship where the more, the more God is beyond the world, the less God is present to the world. The more God is present to the world, the less God is beyond the world. So non-contrastive transcendence is a way of saying, not splitting the difference by saying, well, we'll take a little transcendence here and a little yeah. there, mix it together and get a, a purple God or whatever. No, it's, um, it's a way of it's saying, look, this picture of transcendence is not transcendent enough and needs to be radicalized. And once you understand that God is so transcendent that God isn't contrastive to the universe, but that which is sustaining all the universe then you can understand how it is God can be in relationship to the universe so the fact that God created the world from nothing names the way God is present to all living things to all creation at every single moment is is sustaining all of creation and God's presence to all creation is also a picture of how God is beyond any single thing in it and and the fact that God can be on be beyond all of creation names the way that God can be present to every single thing within creation. This is probably a longer description of non-contrastive no. transcendence that you wanted, but the point is that it's, it's such a it's a radical picture of transcendence that enabled Christians to then describe how it is God could become human without ceasing to be God. Right. This is this is a picture of transcendence and imminence that was worked out particularly in the fourth century um, controversies over how to describe Christ.
1: And that concept and that idea warrants your learning about Christ through your daughters and right. Is that, is that a fair?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that is, that's right. I mean, that's what um, creatio ex nihilo creation from nothing Mm. means the way that God is present to all of creation as creator. Right. And so all of these are gifts from God. And so all of them can, present God to us. All of them can teach us something about God. That, of course, is deeply scriptural, too. The heavens declare Mm -hmm. the glory of God, right? Um, But that also warrants the way, why it is, I can learn something about God from my daughter. There's other warrants for that as well. Um, Particularly, I'm interested in the way that Christ was a baby and the way that Christ, in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, talks about how Christ comes to us in the powerless and marginalized ones of the world Mm. and so um, in in relating to an infinite in her powerlessness i'm also learning something about how it is christ comes to us um and also how christ has been involved in our healing because christ comes to us in the powerless because Christ came to us in our own powerlessness. Yes, absolutely.
0: Well, Natalie, there is so much more that we could, to- we could talk about. I, we've just loved this conversation. But for the sake, for sake of your time and, and, and the listeners, um, I was wondering if you could help wrap us up by telling us a we want our listeners to know how they can continue to support and follow your work and if there are new projects that you are working on uh we'd love for you to highlight those um Blake had mentioned something about um something with suffering and art mm-hmm. um it, can you just uh, highlight some of that stuff for us
2: absolutely um so my um I, I do have a website it's just my name so it's probably easy to find <laughs> And the the work that I'm doing now, I'm doing two projects. One is a, a project I'm doing with my husband. And my husband's a moral theologian, Matthew Whalen, and he does he just wrote a book on Oscar Romero that looks at um, land reform and ordinary violence. And so he's done a lot of work on like property use and possessions and, um, Catholic social teaching. Um, and I've been doing this work that's sort of theology in the arts, theological aesthetics, but we've had conversations ongoing over the years and it's made us realize how separated in theology, these conversations are uh, Mm. conversations about property and poverty and possession and suffering and questions about. Theology and the arts. And so we've been, we're writing a book together now um, on poverty, luxury, and art, asking how it is Christians can justify making, enjoying, supporting art in a world of extreme need. Um, so that project is pretty far along. And then the, the other thing that I'm just at the very beginnings of is in the wake of motherhood, thinking more about feminist theological reading practices. Mm. So my my book, Motherhood is experimenting with the genre of theological writing. But other feminist theologians have been doing the same. Um, Janet Martin Soskis wrote this creative nonfiction work about 10 years ago called Sisters of Sinai. Um, Elizabeth Johnson, one of her yeah. recent books is Creation of the Cross, which is a dialogue um, mm-hmm. mimicking Anselm's dialogues. And um, And then you have about four different prominent feminist theologians who have been writing novels. And I'm interested in, well, what is it that, what what is it that feminist theologians are doing with these practices of reading and writing? What is it pointing to about what's needed as far as how to mediate this patriarchal tradition that is Christianity forward in ways that are more generative? Um, So that's something I'm just beginning to think about, but I'm excited to to think more
1: about it. And I'm excited to read it when it (laughs) has its life. Thank you so much (laughs) for being with us. Um, I can't commend motherhood a confession highly enough. Um, it's to to all kinds of readers. Um, mm-hmm. I think I was telling Aaron when we were prepping. I was like, I think the thing that's so frustrating is that once motherhood or um, gets put on a book there the demographic seems to shrink of who will read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I with my very small voice would like to say that I learned. Um, more about myself, more about my mom, more about God's self. Um, and it led me to uh, pray and worship while I was reading. So thank you for your work. And thank you for speaking to us today.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Blake and Erin. This has been a real delight.
1: Come on. Right? Years I don't know if you could tell that I was giddy the whole time. Uh, <laughs> I found, I picked up her book book Image and Presence a couple years ago and was so astounded mm. by just her mastery of the English language oh, and gosh. then on top oh. of that theological concepts and you I mean all of you now know this from listening to her talk just so effortlessly um the way she wove in Hamilton to her own conversation <laughs> around motherhood her book I just think like <laughs> man not only what an amazing college professor but what a profound Thinker. I yeah. I'm just so challenged by the idea um, of conversion. Mm. I'm so challenged by the idea of like what does it mean to continually be turning back to God and having each other whether that be our children or our family or our friends or our loved ones or our spouse how do we not only be images of Christ to one another, but also be reasons for turning back to God or turning to God in new ways. I think the world of Dr. Carnes and I was so flattered to get to talk to her. What did you love?
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I've heard you talk about Dr. Carnes for for a while, and I'd never gotten into her work. So reading uh, Motherhood was amazing. So I loved getting to do that and go into this interview. But I really appreciate when theologians like her, take this idea of image and beauty and imagery, um, these sensory things that we often take for granted or are adverse to because we maybe grew up in traditions that said, ooh, don't you know stay away from images, stay away from it. its it's idolatry. But truly, theology opens a whole other, door when you do that. So so to me, it reminded me a little bit about like, it was almost like reading Chesterton because his father was an artist and his approach to theology was was very visceral and um, reimagining uh, Augustine's confessions and reimagining motherhood and and tackling these uh, traditional ideas of how we think about that. that. It was just, I'll go back and listen to this one again and again.
1: And I love that she gives us another option, like not just throwing out a patriarchal text or crafting new, more thoughtful texts nor more empowering texts but the third option is i a reparative reading is what she calls it and i left reading her book loving confessions more than i did yes. when i read confessions it's not a i wanted to burn confessions and then hold up this new work and now i just want to hand both which i think is such a master piece um so everyone should go get a copy of motherhood a Confession. And I'm so excited about her upcoming projects that I had no idea about Mm -hmm. until we talked to her. But I also would commend not only Motherhood, but specifically the first chapter in her book, Image and Presence, Mm. where she does some pretty masterful work on um, Mary and the female body that I think um, is equally as powerful as her book, Motherhood.
0: Awesome. Well, guys... We hope you have grown to appreciate Natalie Carnes in the same way we both have. Um, And we just want to thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we would love to hear from you. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can leave us a rating or review, which would be great on iTunes or any of the podcast platforms you use. Um, We really appreciate connecting with you. And we also just love feedback. Um, And also, if you really, really love the podcast, uh, you should become a patron and join our Patreon account. You'll receive uh, early releases, of podcast episodes as well as varying additional content from your favorite co-host so definitely go and check that out it is so easy and simple and cheap to become a patron um, but thank you for being here today i'm aaron moniz here with co-host blake dean and of course many thanks to our fabulous producer bailey dingley we are mutuality matters thanks for listening